Hello, hello, everyone. This is Volts for March 15th, 2023. Clean Energy's Yearly Report Card. I'm your host, David Roberts. Every year, the Business Council for Sustainable Energy partners with Bloomberg NEF to produce the Sustainable Energy in America Factbook, a compilation of charts, graphs, and statistics about the clean energy industry and where it is headed. The 2023 edition is out, and it shows a record year for investment in clean energy and installations of renewables, alongside record demand for natural gas and record investment in gas infrastructure. To chat about some of the numbers, I contacted Lisa Jacobson, president of BCSE. We talked about the momentum behind clean energy, the enormous investments uncorked by the Inflation Reduction Act, the supply chain difficulties that plagued the industry this year, the backlash to ESG investing, and the surge in energy storage. All right, Lisa Jacobson, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. This is a real honor. There is a ton of facts <laughs> in your fact book. Yes. Uh, let's let's just start uh, digging into some of them. First, one of the sort of top line things you talk about in the report is investment. And I always have a little bit of a difficulty with these investment numbers because every time I see investment numbers, I feel like I see the same thing, which is we broke records, but we're also nowhere near where we need to be that over and over again. Is that the story again? What do you see in investment trends in clean energy? I have to admit, I suffer from the same kind of dual existence. On one <laughs> hand, you know, we've been doing this fact book and I should say, you know, the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. I'm proud to serve as the president there. We produce this in partnership with Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and this is our 11th year. And maybe later we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about the origination of the project. But yeah, no, I agree with you. Like we see year after year in many areas, record-breaking fact here, record-breaking fact there. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we can see big picture that we are making a difference. But when you look at where we need to go, um, it can be very disheartening. How far are we from the investment trajectory we need to be on? What is the scale by which we are falling short? You know, one thing just to say, you know, if we're talking about the Sustainable Energy in America fact book, it is not a forecast. It is historical, though it is very up to date. So we're definitely giving very close to real time data as we can in many areas. And then it, that, again, is thanks to Bloomberg New Energy Finance. But, you know, we certainly look out and see what Bloomberg New Energy Finance and what our members are saying is needed. I mean, and it's it could be a quadrupling of where we are now. Oh, my goodness. So there is a lot to do on the deployment <laughs> side and the investment side. You know, we have a critical decade to take it, you know, not even to the next level. It, it has to go way, way, way up um, in many areas. Quadrupling is quite a next level. Uh yes. One thing I, I saw is that the backlash to ESG, environmental, social, and governance stuff from corporations, um, you know, listeners may be familiar with the sort of controversy over ESG that's going on right now. It's a big movement among corporations to start trying to do this more responsible stuff. And now there's a giant backlash being led by Republicans who are, in some cases, in Republican states making it illegal for people like pension managers to consider the environmental impact of their uh, investments. You know, I, I know a lot of people in the sort of investment game or pension funds, things like that, do not necessarily relish or want to be controversial political figures. And I wonder if this is scaring them off. I wonder if you're seeing an impact in investment levels in response to this ESG backlash. Well, the fact book this year does discuss this topic and does have some commentary that implies that, yes, in fact, it, it is slowing investment in this area. And I look at, um, you know, we had a recent 
vote in Congress that passed that would reinstate, you know, restrictions on the Department of Labor, which oversees a lot of these pension programs and some of the regulations there kind of uh, seeking to restrict uh, the option for ESG investment to be part of these programs, which to me, you know, the council didn't take a public position on it. It's just not in our um, portfolio of advocacy work. But why would you restrict the option of something like this to be considered? I I think it's very disturbing. It did pass both the House and Senate, and it got uh, votes on a bipartisan basis. I understand that President Biden will veto this. But, you know, we need to be able to be free to assess risk and put investment dollars in the most sound way, given the conditions that we are in. And it's not just environment, right? We have social and governance factors, too. So ESG is, you know, of course, environment, but it is also other things. I, I don't think those policies make a whole lot of sense. I think we should be flexible. I think we should allow for innovation and, you know, a full accounting of risk management But I think, as you'll also see discussed in the fact book, there are opportunities to provide clarity in the marketplace that might make it more attractive for some that are skeptical about ESG investing. You know, some don't have enough confidence in the data behind it, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a process underway at the Securities and Exchange Commission where here in the United States, there will be hopefully um, this spring a release of some climate risk related disclosure policies. Um, There's a lot that potentially could be in this final rule. Groups like the Business Council for Sustainable Energy did intervene and provide comments. So we are hopeful that something will be released and that it will provide some very much needed clarity. And it's not just happening here in the U.S. This is happening in Europe. It's happening in Japan. It's happening in other countries. What you mean the fight over ESG generally? The attempt to provide more clarity for climate disclosure. Mm. Uh, I can't speak to, you know, whether other countries are experiencing, you know, some of these types of policies that we call out in the fact book. But I think, you know, there is overall what I hear from, you know, our members and and global companies is there is a need to provide clarity uh, to make relevant disclosures to investors. I'm pretty sure, at least from what I've heard, the backlash against ESG is unique to our uh, lovely Republican Party here in the U.S. (laughs) I think if you went somewhere else in the world and said, hey, we want to make it illegal to consider social responsibility in your investing, uh, you would probably get laughed at. I guess what what I'm wondering is just what's your sense of whether this fight is going to have a material effect on investment flows into these areas? Or do you think it's kind of a just kind of a political fuss that will pass? You know, I mean, obviously, you laid out two very um, different views. Of course, I'm going to say it's somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I would argue that the data on clean energy or energy transition investment, however we want to, you know, title it, that is the direction of investment. Mm -hmm. And it's increasing each year. And ESG is certainly a part of that, but it's not all of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether this will, this questioning will linger in the years to come and whether it has the possibility of dampening ESG investment over time, I can't say, but I feel strongly that there are market signals into the portfolio of, you know, decarbonizing technologies. But then the question becomes, well, will it be enough and will it be fast Mm, enough? Yes. (laughs) Speaking of the sort of rising tide of investment, uh, let's talk a little bit about corporate procurement. I, you know, whenever I see these numbers, I my head gets blown back. You know, I, I'm not sure average people appreciate the scale of corporate procurement and how fast it's going up. So, talk a little bit about how, how that shows up in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it is remarkable, especially given everything that companies have had to deal with during the COVID pandemic and the business conditions around it. And I certainly point to this in my top three is like, is the clean energy transition hardwired into the economy? I say, yes, it is. And that was kind of our theme for this year. Mm -hmm. This is one of those top line metrics. You know, if you look at what was accomplished or a record breaking year in 2022, looking at corporate PPAs signed, we were looking at about 20 gigawatts of those signed. Now, obviously, you sign a corporate PPA that doesn't mean that the new build happens or that, 
you know, the projects are happening in sync with the pledge, but it's a really strong forward looking signal. And when you compare that to how renewable energy has been deployed and the scale of deployment, you know, you can see a big chunk of that forward signal realized looking at the renewable energy deployment in 2022 we estimate it at about 32 gigawatts so okay they're not year on year again going to materialize in the same way but it is a really strong signal and it shows you that in the out years we're going to especially from the private sector have increased demand for uh, zero carbon and zero emissions power one thing that's wild about the graph you show is how big of a chunk Amazon is. Like Amazon alone is close to half that 20 gigawatts. And I noticed in a footnote, it says Amazon alone has signed more clean energy PPAs than all corporate PPAs in Europe combined in 2022. It's a, it's a big set of numbers, that's for sure. But you know, every year we do try, not because we are trying to cherry pick, but we do try to show the diversity of players and how this market is changing. Yes, we certainly have the tech companies making very leading, forward-leaning um, movement here, but we also have McDonald's. Mm-hmm. This year we called out Ford and General Motors. So, I mean, it's a bigger field than just tech. And again, I think that goes back to, you know, what are investors and customers looking for and what do these companies themselves want in terms of reliable, affordable and clean energy that they use as part of their businesses? This is a little bit of a side question, but it just sort of occurred to me and I I have often wondered about it. I mean, there are the practical benefits of getting cheap energy, right, in, in terms of procurement. But how big a deal is the signal it sends to employees like I never know how seriously they take this. You see some companies who are big into this saying our employees want to work somewhere that is, you know, active in this, that is, that is doing something good on, on the environment, on climate. And it's a competitive advantage to us to be spending money on this stuff. It attracts employees. Do you, do you hear that when you talk to business owners? I do both from the provider side and I hear that from the energy user side that I talk to. I also think, you know, there's a range of other things that are a part of it. Energy security, energy reliability, energy predictability. I think that's something mm-hmm. else that was really important that was highlighted when we shared the data on corporate PPAs. Um, you know, why do they continue to be attractive? Well, you can you lock in your prices. And by doing that, you can avoid some of the volatility that we've experienced, whether that be from economic conditions you know, this horrible situation we have right now with the war in Ukraine, or, you know, a natural disaster in your community, like, or, you know, extreme weather, like these storms we've been having this year. So I mean, there's any number of reasons why. But I remember going to some of my first conferences when I got into this industry, and this is going back, I'm going to date myself, but you know, probably Mm -hmm. about 20 years ago, and you would have a discussion about this emerging field of corporate procurement for renewable energy. And the companies would get up there and they'd have their slide and they'd say, why are we doing this? And one of the top things was employee retention. Hmm. So I believe that it is true and it endures. But I also think there are other reasons why they're doing it. With that, that 20 years ago may not have been as evident, right? Right. Certainly the prices have come down so much more. Yeah. The business models have matured. So more companies can actually do this at a larger scale. So, I mean, the world has changed in 20 years, but that clearly employee interest and employee retention was a big part of why they were considering it and moving forward. And we have had some quite visceral recent lessons about volatility. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's a real case study these past few years. One, one other question about investment, and this was, you know, I knew this would happen, and yet every time I read about it happening, it just gratifies me to no end. I love it. Um, although IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, passed relatively late in the year, its effect on investment is already quite visible. So what did you find in terms of response to the IRA? We, like others, are trying to track the impact. And, you know, we picked a few data sets. We did, you know, different manufacturing announcements, some for lithium-ion batteries. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we, we tried to map it around the country. 
we're looking across the board at you know where these hydrogen hub applications are going to land. Now, those didn't come from the Inflation Reduction Act. They came from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that passed at the end of the year in 2021. But however, now we have in the works enacted, but still to be the you know to be completely defined uh, hydrogen production tax credit. So it just the economics of this is shifting quite dramatically. So, you know, we're, we're trying to track as many announcements as we can, but, and, and I know you know this, but others may not, you know, a lot of the financial incentives through the tax code are dependent on shifting more domestic manufacturing here in the United States and for many technologies, not just for one. So yeah. this is across the board. So to qualify fully for these credits, they'll need to be um, more, onshoring, you know, hardening up and expanding our domestic supply chains. Now, I say those words, it sounds really easy. It is not easy. And it is <laughs> going to be very challenging over the next five years. But at least we have a long-term policy that shows those that are willing to make those investments that they'll have time to kind of get to the next level of market penetration. Like, I think back dating myself again, I think back to around 2007 and 2008 and the production tax credit, which, you know, is for many technologies, but I'm talking mostly about the wind industry at this time. Since the early 90s, production tax credit, it largely was a one year or two year mm -hmm. opportunity, often would lapse and get retroactively instated. But we had a period of time where there was a lot of market confidence and I remember going to one of the U.S., um, then it was the American Wind Energy Association, now American Clean Power Association, but I went to one of their, this was one of their largest wind conferences they've ever had. And the enthusiasm and walking the floor, and it was just amazing. And they talked about the domestic manufacturing jobs and all of this. Well, we ran into a period of time where that tax credit was not extended and it wasn't extended in a predictable way. And we shed so much of that. I mean, it was really sad. Yes, you can see it in the graphs, in the right. deployment graphs. It really, they really rise and fall with the with the credit coming and going. Yeah, and when we had a longer term extension for the investment tax credit, which you know largely people think of for just solar, you know, it's really clear in the in the data. It's a dramatic, progressive increase over a five year period because we had a five year extension of the investment tax credit for an, a number of years. So yeah, it, it really is meaningful. And we don't want to get into a situation where we're having unpredictable investment conditions. So that's like for me, the two things about the Inflation Reduction Act that are the most significant is the timeline that we have and the breadth and scope of the technologies that are included in the range of tax measures they have. You know, that's something my organization has been arguing for on both sides for many, many years, because it's not just one or two technologies that are going to get us there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need the full portfolio and we need for them to somewhat interact. Yeah. You said, what's the investment uh, reaction? I, I remember in August and September fielding a lot of phone calls from people in companies saying, you know, we are rethinking what we can offer our customers because of the Inflation Reduction Act, because it mm. offers this opportunity or this tax policy. I mean, that's that's what you hope for, right? You hope for innovation <laughs> and integration. So anyway, I'm going on, but there's a lot to think about when we think about the Inflation Reduction Act. In terms of the investment response to the IRA, you know, I know there have been you know, the EV tax credits in particular are, are linked to domestic supply considerations. And so there's been several announcements from various manufacturers in the battery supply chain. But this, you know, maybe this is a side question. You can and you can take it or not take it as you want. But I wonder the goal, you know, Manchin's goal in uh, tying the EV tax credits that way was to, you know, sort of recreate the full supply chain here in the U.S., which is not just battery manufacturing, which everyone loves, and, and EV manufacturing, which everyone loves, but also mining raw materials, which is not that pretty, and processing those raw materials, which is not that pretty. I wonder, do you see in terms of who's announced investments 
in domestic manufacturing in response to IRA. Do you see trends in like what those investments are in? Are they across the full supply chain or are there some, you know, sort of like areas that are getting more investment than others? Well, I mean, I can say what we've pointed to, which you've already addressed, which those are the most visible. But I I guess in response, I would point to the conversation going on in the leading committees on these topics in Congress, and in particular in the House of Representatives, where they feel there are opportunities for mining or for other aspects of the supply chain, which, as you said, you know, sometimes can be controversial or subject to very long approval processes, you know, being put forward and saying, you know, if we want the energy transition and, you know, we want secure supply chains, kind of almost irrespective of the Inflation Reduction Act for a moment, Mm -hmm. we need to be really thinking about who we're going to be getting this raw materials from and under what conditions. And we've already kind of had a lot of conversation about labor issues and, these topics as it relates to the solar industry, right? And I think there's a real commitment there and has already been demonstrated to address those labor concerns, which are very real, and also to think about having a more reliable supply chain. And does it all have to be in North America? I mean, I think there's a lot of conversation about how our trade policy can, you know, help us build larger markets for raw materials to help us progress in the energy transmission in, you know, kind of our allied countries. I mean, a lot of that's still to be worked out. But Mm. I mean, where we're starting from is a a very challenging base right now. (laughs) It's starting from almost nothing. I mean, that's what's wild about it. That's why the next five years are going to be so fascinating, right? I mean, I don't, I can't recall anything in my political memory that's kind of just so audacious, very audacious thing to say we're going to start from almost zero and build an entire supply chain for a major industry like this. It's it's wild. I mean, I again going back into the past in my early career, I remember sitting in and and you know the business council. You know, we do work on sustainable transportation, but at the time, not so much. So I'm thinking about 10, 15 years ago, and the council participates in the international climate negotiations. And I remember being in events on electric transportation. And, you know, California was there and several, you know, different entities from China and other like, who were the leaders at the time? And where were we getting? Where was this market originating? And who was really pushing it? You know, 15, 20 years ago, it it was not being led, uh, you know, on the supply chain basis by the US. So we are playing catch up. But I think what's different is I think there is a private sector led commitment to this, whether they will meet that vision, I don't know. But what we didn't have then was, you know, the private sector in the US marketplace, willing to really try, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and there are going to be a lot of roadblocks, because, you know, as you said, the, the, the whole issue with critical minerals, and how we're going to address that in North America, or in other countries, is going to be, you know, I certainly don't have the crystal ball to know how that's all going to play out. But People are seriously talking about how we could do it. And because, and I'm an optimist, you have to be right, because, (laughs) you know, the the business community is much more involved and on board that we will see more progress than we would have seen under under other circumstances. Well, let's talk about minerals for a minute, because one of the trends illustrated in the fact book this year is that it's been a bit of a wild year for pricing of several key Uh, minerals that are involved in the clean energy transition. You know, this is a huge topic of discussion now. Uh, The total availability of those minerals, where they're produced, whether they can be produced fast enough to satisfy demand, all this kind of stuff. But at least, you know, this past year that you're looking back on in the fact book, uh, prices went haywire in a couple of these minerals. So I, you know, calling on you for (laughs) the crystal ball again, but Do you have any sense talking to your members whether people are settling in for this being kind of the new normal for a while, that we're just going to have crazy swings in these mineral prices because of rising demand? Or do they view it as kind of a bump in the road that will sort itself out quickly Um, or somewhere in between? I I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that have a very particular view, but I don't know (laughs) if I've heard that. I mean, I think it's more of like a... Uh, near-term reality, you know, I mean, thinking about 
the rockiness of last year and in particular, you know, again, so there were, as you mentioned, a number of things uh, that contributed to it, but, you know, the kind of the shipping constraints, the supply chain issues that were in part because Mm -hmm. of the year before and COVID, then there were, you know, issues with different components coming and different products coming into the U.S. again, in some parts due to needing to certify appropriate labor conditions. Then, you know, there's just the global uh, circumstance that we were in with the war in Ukraine and, and what that's doing to the economy and the energy markets at large. So there's there's a lot going in here. Then there is the trade policy. You know, we, we also talk about that, you know, for the solar industry. And it shows you the, the policy and how it can quickly change what was a, a generally predictable um, marketplace. You know, that policy kind of stopped everything in the water when it came out. I think, I yeah, I did do a pod on this. <laughs> so they're all starting to run together now. But, you know, the, uh, what we're talking about here is these sort of tariffs on solar panels or solar modules that come from China, basically. And the and the dispute was because, of you know, the industry had turned to buying uh, modules and panels from Vietnam and countries like that. And the sort of question was, are parts from China simply being kind of laundered through Vietnam, et cetera? So in other words, are we importing from China after all? And there was um, the threat that there were going to be tariffs put on on these parts from Vietnam and, and, and South Korea and, and things like this. And that, you know, that was a big hit, even though it ended up, what did they do? They just they gave it a reprieve. They kicked the can down the road. Right. So, but, you know, now there's still some questions. I mean, basically the the reprieve that came said, we're going to put this on hold for two years. Um, you won't be subject to tariffs. We're going to look at this more as the Department of Commerce, you know, goes through its process. Mm-hmm. So it's not fully resolved. And there could be other things that come up. I mean, I think that's also like, you know, the last five years for any business, you've seen unpredictability due to COVID, due to maybe uh, local impacts, uh, hopefully no natural disasters, but maybe something in your community or, or where you're manufacturing or operating. And then you see um, high inflation and high pricing environment. Some of that in the transportation sector clearly due to global markets for energy commodities. In other cases, it may be more localized. So, I mean, it's just a lot going on. And I think that also kind of, even though you can't be completely insulated from it, if you do more onshoring or domestic manufacturing, but you might have much more control, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I think it's attractive to businesses. So I think that's another reason why, I mean, obviously the legislation points in that direction, but I also think there's a recognition that we're out of whack, right? I don't know what the right, right whack needs to be, what, <laughs> what the balance is, but we are not in balance right now. And we're, it's a risk. Yeah, it's a chaotic time to be <laughs> in this business. Let's talk about energy generation. Uh, it's obviously one of the big trends that the fact book is tracking. And here again, you see a story that to me causes mixed feelings, a very familiar story, which is basically in the U.S. electricity system in the last whatever, five to 10 years, you see the dual rise of renewables and natural gas. So like together – you know, coal's dying together. I think combined, they went from 40-something percent to 60-something percent of electricity now. And of course, everybody loves renewables, but natural gas uh, is a fossil fuel and got to go at some point. But everything that I can find in this report, every piece of data looks to me like natural gas is on the rise, even though prices went up this year, still it's on the rise. Demand went up. Investment in natural gas infrastructure was up. Is there any sign anywhere in the data that natural gas is going to peak or that we're going to turn away from it or that we're going to start trying to rein it in or at least stop growing it? Or what's your sort of take on the trajectory of natural gas? Well, I mean, again, I, I'm not at the privilege of forecasting, but I mean, I can share some of my points of view on this. Number one, let's look at what renewables did. Okay. And renewables, we, we broke the record. We're finally like, 
All right, we said we were 21% last year, but now we're 23. So we're clearly over 20% of generation here. That is an important breakthrough. Obviously, as we already talked about, that needs to double, you know, triple, quadruple. And that's renewables with hydro. Including hydropower. So that's good. Nuclear has kind of remained steady state. And, you know, with the the added policy support, you know, I I imagine that will stay the same. I'm not sure if it will increase in years, but I don't see it in the short term, at least decreasing. We're seeing declines in coal and really what's making that up, as you said, natural gas and renewable energy. When I talk to, you know, so our membership, our part of the market are gas utilities, some independent power producers, those in the marketplace that either develop microgrids or combined heat and power projects, so like efficient, very efficient uses of natural gas, sometimes for power generation, some in the fuel cell industry. Um, So, you know, natural gas, and as you can see in some of the data, is kind of in all parts of our economy. But going back to the power sector, you know, when I talk to our members, they talk about decarbonization and they have plans to decarbonize these facilities. So whether it be carbon capture and storage, carbon capture storage utilization, or it be blending with renewable natural gas or switching to hydrogen over time, like they are, my members are aware that they need to decarbonize. They need to, our economy needs to decarbonize and that the power sector needs to decarbonize. I can't tell you, you know, what the next 10, 20 years are going to be, but the data is out there. The science is out there. The goals are being set. And now we have some more supportive policies. So I'm looking forward to seeing what gets realized, you know, in the next (laughs) five to 10 years, put it that way. But I think it is very transparent, you know, where we need to go and what the power sector will do. And the power sector continues to lead on decarbonization. And in a large part, it's because of fuel switching from coal to natural gas. Mm. So we we have to recognize where we've been. Is that where we need to stay and where we need to go? I don't think any of our members are, are sitting down when they look at this. They're moving forward and they're trying to figure out how to work with their communities to decarbonize. Yeah, I guess I'm just impatient for some of that to show up in the numbers because the numbers are just rising use, rising exports, rising investment, rising infrastructure. I mean, all the all the trends are going in the wrong direction, it looks to me, uh, at least currently. Um, investment in renewable energy in the U.S. has declined year on year since 2019. What is the right degree of uh, freakout in, in, in response to that trend? Do you think that's a sign of something bigger and ongoing, or is this a, just a, a normal fluctuation? Well, I mean, I look at the things that we, we discussed, right? We looked at deployment trends. We looked at corporate demand. We look at the policies that were just enacted that have long-term policies. I mean, some of this, as I understood it in the last few years, was because of the uncertainty of extending some of these policies at the, you know, in the tax code. So it was impacting project pipelines and timing of things. And we had COVID where, you know, you just couldn't get pricing right. You couldn't get the mm-hmm. product. I mean, like, it's just very hard to sign contracts in that situation, given the delays and challenges we had in the COVID period. So, I mean, I, I see us continuing to deploy. I can see demand strong. I see public-private partnership now on the investment side to catalyze more private sector investment. So I feel much more favorable looking out in the years ahead. Again, I think we're really going to benefit from a long-term policy foundation. Maybe you have the same answer to this question then, too, because also when I look at the levelized cost of energy, charts that you have in here you know sort of one of the sort of catechisms one of the things that's that's very fundamental to clean energy folks like me is this notion that wind and solar are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper right like Mm -hmm. this is the basis of a great deal of our optimism uh about the future but if you look at the chart the lcoe of wind and of solar have kind of evened out for several years the you know, they felt they were falling quite quickly in like around like 2015 or so, but have kind of leveled out. Uh, and again, you know, this is a, 
a crystal ball question, but I just how 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 much should we think of that as the new normal state of affairs versus a weird outgrowth of the chaos of the last <laughs> few years? Well, I think you know all the technologies highlighted in the LCOE, you know, went up, right? Yeah, they all nudge up this this past year. It's funny, right? And if you look at them, you know, comparatively, as the data shows, they still are lower on a levelized cost basis than the alternatives. So we have, and you can see this goes this one chart I'm looking at from the fact book goes back to 2014. I mean, dramatic LCOE reductions. And these are, you know, again, based on projects, real projects, at least according to the Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, methodology. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the way I hear them talk about it is, look, we were in a high price environment. Everything went up, but renewables kind of proportionally didn't go up as much. Mm. Um, So that's what I hear them say. Mm. It'll be so interesting to get a few years past the Ukraine (laughs) stuff. You know, COVID settles out a little bit more. It'll be interesting to see what kind of sort of new normal emerges out of all this. Or who knows, Lisa, if we ever see anything that resembles normal (laughs) ever again. (laughs) You know, wind and solar are the big beasts (laughs) in this forest. If you look at the chart, they completely dominate it, uh, you know, with battery installations now on the rise. But do you see anything in the data that makes you excited about any of these smaller players? So I'm thinking about like, geothermal or biomass or maybe SMRs or any of these sort of, you know, these kind of things that get swept into the category other. Is there anything in the data that makes you think they're going to, any of those are going to do anything? Yes. Um, (laughs) And I'm really glad you asked that question because yes, I mean, clearly dominating the renewables market place from capacity uh, coming online, build his wind and solar. And that's the way it has been for many, many years. But, you know, you have to really kind of look closely. But if you look um, in our recent year data, like you really have to look, but you see some other (laughs) colors. Okay. And those that's before the Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, kind of renewables that you might not think of first, but have real potential. And, you know, from a broader kind of circular economy perspective, you know, mm-hmm. things like waste to energy, renewable fuels, we're talking about electricity, so I'll stay in the electricity world. Um, they had not had the type of policy support that wind and solar have had, largely because of the very short-term nature of these policies. Mm-hmm. These other technologies take a much longer time to uh, go through their approval processes, and, you know, they couldn't take advantage of a two-year investment tax credit or production tax credit. So now they are treated largely on a level playing field and they can potentially, because we're still waiting for some of this guidance to come out. So I can't speak with complete authority, but the intention is that all renewables technologies will be able to participate and they'll have a 10 year window. So that's a game changer for a lot of these technologies. Also, I would say, you know, pumped hydropower, which is the current storage technology that dominates you know, 60 plus percent, the rest, you know, largely battery storage can benefit from the Inflation Reduction Act, too. So, I mean, there's just going to be a lot, a lot changing in terms of the technology mix. I think that's really healthy. And I also think the co-benefits of a lot of these technologies that might have been overlooked, you know, will come more to light. Yeah. And storage is the other, I guess, one of the other big stories in terms of investment, just the, you know, this absolute stampede of investment towards storage. I was asking on Twitter the other day, if you look at the graphs of installed storage in the U.S., as you say, it's just pump storage is almost all of it. And then in like the last three or four years, you see on top of this tower of pumped storage, just these little bars of other storage starting to grow. And I was sort of asking people to predict, like, when do you think that bar of other is going to get as big as the pumped hydro mm bar that will be a an interesting milestone what did they say oh how long you you know guess uh guesses range all over the place i mean if you just you know project out based on current trajectory it's like two three four years it's not that far out you know it depends on whether the sort of rate of growth of of investment in batteries and stuff maintains or what happens to it but a super interesting area to watch and what happens with pumped hydro right because as i said they can benefit from the inflation reduction act 
I mean, obviously we need more storage, you know, we need all kinds of storage. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm curious about now you piqued my interest too. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to have someone on to discuss hydro soon and we're going to discuss pumped hydro storage. I'm curious whether there's a lot more of that to be had or how that all stands. One of the most exciting things in this fact book is the very recent surge of investment into electrolyzers, mm-hmm. uh, i.e. Uh, green hydrogen. What are you seeing? What's your what's your take on that? I know, as I said before, how uh, much interest in helping to grow a hydrogen economy there is in, in my own membership, but also expanding to my members' customers. And mm. this year, unlike other years, we really wanted to try to, you know, we wanted to in other years, but this year we did it, put it that way. We put in some kind of background information on the industrial sector. And, you know, when we presented the 2023 Factbook for the first time last week, Ethan Zindler, who you know is really the the lead on helping to put this project together for Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and he really put a pin in the fact that industrial emissions really hasn't changed. Yes, and how important that is. So we put data in here to show you know okay what are what do we mean by that? What are the sectors? What what kind of fuels do they use? How hard is it for them to decarbonize? So it's some educational factual information about our industrial sectors. And, you know, you hear this a lot, you know, well, here, you know, hydrogen, it can can be, you know, it's the key to, that unlocks things because it can be put in so many places. Uh, really slices, it dices. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really like that analogy so much. I shouldn't have said it. But, but basically, <laughs> the point is that it has a lot of potential applications and many mm-hmm. of those are hard to envision electrifying. Mm-hmm. So we need to get this done. We need to build hydrogen economies that are viable and we need to decarbonize them. Right. And, you know, I think that's where industry is. It's not going to happen overnight, but that's there's a commitment there. And the opportunities provided by the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and these regional hydrogen hub projects and now supported by tax policy, it's going to be really important. So what do we track as a benchmark right, to see where the hydrogen economy is going? One of those metrics is electrolyzer prices, right? And electrolyzer mm-hmm. production. So yeah, we're seeing costs coming down, but they need to come down a lot more, right? And a lot of these policy and market penetration goals, you know, look at targets for electrolyzer pricing. So um, we see the costs coming down, but we haven't really gotten to the point where we're, we've seen that pivot yet because we're, st- you know, maybe in a couple of years, we'll be able to see more of a dramatic impact is right. there's more hydrogen production and obviously more utilization of electrolyzers. Yeah, it's definitely underway. And the amount of money being dumped on green hydrogen in the IRA is wild. <laughs> it's like $20 billion or something like mm-hmm. that getting ready to rain down on this sector. So it'll be interesting to see the fact book next year and see what happens to electrolyzer investment number. I suspect it's going to be a hot, hot area. Well, I look forward to talking to you about it next year. Uh, yeah. And uh, one thing you, you sort of uh, uh, mentioned this in passing, but I think it's worth putting a pin in because to me, it's quite symbolically important. Um, as the report says, as recently as 2015, I think the power sector was the number one emitting sector in the U.S. economy. And then a few years after that, transport passed it and it became number two. And now because it's continuing to fall, it is tied with industry for number two. And I wouldn't be surprising at all if next year or the year after that industry is squarely number two. Yeah. I mean, right now, and just looking at our chart there, they're together. (laughs) So, and, and if you follow the trends that we've seen in the power sector, even in this really um, unusual few years. I mean, the power sector continues to decarbonize. And, and that's, that's kind of what we were talking about at the beginning. Like some of this is structural now. When you look at the chart that shows what we've been building over the last 10, 20 years, and you see that transition, which now is dominated by renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And in the last couple of years, we see storage in there too, which we didn't mm-hmm. see before. So what, what is being built is going to last. And it's going to last at least 20 years, maybe more. So 
we really are seeing a transformation. So for the power sector, yeah, I think that could be really interesting next year. Yeah. And then maybe, you know, maybe industry will finally get the attention. Everybody keeps saying it it deserves, you know, because you look at that line, the reason the power is passing is because power is going down and industry is just not. It's just right. uh, it's, it's steady as she goes. So that'll be an interesting area to watch for the next few years. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, obviously we, we talked about electric vehicles and sustainable transportation, but, you know, transportation, we just got to keep going. You know, we just got to, you know, it's going to be a very interesting few years there too. Yes. Uh, a couple of final questions. We, you know, you um, say a few things in the, in the fact book about what kinds of policies might help because, you know, as you say, as everyone says, every time anyone puts out a report in this area, you know, we're going faster than ever, but not nearly fast enough. Uh, it's always the same, <laughs> always the same story. So, right. you know, you recommend some policies to help things move along and move faster. And specifically, you talk about permitting reform, which is a hot subject these days. I wonder what you hear from your members. How big of a deal is that for them? Because, you know, if you listen to sort of the renewable energy crowd these days, they're very hyped up about it. But then, of course, like the oil and gas people are also super hyped up about it. And just how much of that is hype? And are you hearing that from your actual businesses? Well, I mean, I don't think it's hype. I think it's very real. You know, if we go back to kind of what we would like to see in the energy transition, and then we think about it in the context of climate change, we need to be, you know, dramatically scaling up but when we take a step back, you know, even for renewable energy projects, you know, it could take, I mean, we, so we did a thorough assessment of all the data we could find on this topic. And obviously mm -hmm. it ranges, but, you know, we're talking, um, I think we cite like four to six years, but the range is bigger than that. And, you know, so there's things we can do here from a federal level to provide more certainty, predictability and streamline the timelines for these approvals, I mean, that should just be done. And it should be done for all projects that are subject to these requirements. We're not talking about removing environmental safeguards. We're talking about just making a clearer process. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, people are talking about lots of things, but that's what I'm going to start <laughs> with. We need to, to do that. Are you talking about legislation? Because Yeah, I, Congress needs to act. So we can improve those processes. Do you have any sense based on interacting with people in Washington, whether there's, you know, this is a big question going forward, whether there's enough bipartisan support for something like this to get it over the line? I think the recognition is there that this needs to be done, but I'm not sure what the timeline is because right now we're at a critical, we're recording this right in March and the House of Representatives is about to move forward its vision for this topic. Mm. Um, then we're going to have an opportunity to, to see a revised vision of, of what the Senate might want to do, and they're going to have to come together. And, you know, I, I think what's changed, though, is that there is this recognition that this is not just parts of Congress or parts of the federal government that recognize this is a problem or parts of the private sector that realize this is a problem. Everybody experiences it. But I think the point I'd like to make, though, is it's not just about what happens here in Washington and changing the federal process, which clearly mm -hmm. needs to be changed. It's really a local conversation. I mean, it's a local state and regional conversation. You know, we're having a lot of difficulty moving forward with many different types of clean energy projects because at the local level, there might not be support or sufficient support to move quickly. And so it's really across the board where, you know, our industries need to work in partnership with communities to uh, make it clear and attractive and comfortable for them to move forward with any number of kinds of infrastructure investments that we need to make. And we need to do it fast. So uh, well, we need to do we need to do everything fast. Color me skeptical about whether we're going to get sane legislation out of this coming Congress fast or or any other way. So final Sort of questions to wrap up, um, you know, where the, the, the rubber hits the road on all this is CO2 emissions. And the fact book shows that emissions actually nudged slightly up this year, <laughs> which seems uh, bad. And even if you, you know, sort of average out this year and look at recent trajectory, once again, we're back to the familiar story of not moving fast enough. Are you 
I guess once again, I'm asking what the right level of freak out about <laughs> is about this. Like, are you worried about emissions nudging up or are you comfortable that we're on a firm downward trajectory in the long term? No, I'm not comfortable. I mean, how can <laughs> no you look that... <laughs> at the data and be comfortable? We yes. have so far to go and look how long it took us to get where we are. And then we had <laughs> unpredictable events happening globally as well as in our own country. So, I mean, no one should feel comfortable. <laughs> this is for us to realize. We collectively, wherever we sit, whether we're in the sector or not in the sector, have to get involved, right? It goes back to what I said at the community level. I mean, this energy transition, whether we're focused on industrial customers or the transportation sector in a community or the electricity that a community um, provides to its households and businesses, like this has got to be a collective effort for a massive change in the way things are done. And we, we can't rest. So no, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with it. I'm also not pessimistic because we've never had the kind of policy support that we have now. And again, we don't have all the answers to how it will be implemented, but this is massive for us and it's going to have an impact. So mm-hmm. I, the last thing I would say, cause we didn't talk about it at all. And that, that, you know, is something I should have raised earlier. You know, we talk a lot about the supply side, but energy efficiency, you know, we need to do so much more with energy efficiency. And unlike these other things, we know it may not be easy to accomplish for many reasons, which I'd love to be on a podcast with you to talk about energy efficiency markets. But but we know it performs and it performs year in, year out. And if you look at buildings, you know, we have so much that we can do. And again, we're not waiting for you know, a permit here. We're not waiting for, you know, these big, massive um, infrastructure investment. We can do this on a smaller scale right now at a building level, at a campus level, at a community level. And we have economic drivers through the Inflation Reduction Act, also through the private sector, but we just don't talk about it enough. And I think that is in part, you know, a missed opportunity. We, We need to be talking about this. And then there's so many other benefits we get with energy efficiency. So, you know, I think what I am hopeful for that will help us turn the tide here with this data on our emissions is a renewed focus on elevating energy efficiency and looking at the demand side and creating market structures that take that to the quadrupled level, right? Mm, well, uh, hallelujah to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love the demand side here at Volts and agree that it is under appreciated, underappreciated, under resourced. Uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, with digitization of, you know, with buildings getting smarter, there's just so many opportunities now there's so much running room to just make buildings assets rather than right rather than uh, consumers okay this is a wonderful a dizzying uh (laughs) overview of a lot of different uh data i encourage everyone to go uh look at the fact book it's almost all uh nice charts and graphs so all the you chart and graph lovers will will want to check it out and uh lisa jacobson thank you so much for coming on the pod Thank you. I really, you know, first of all, I think you're brave. (laughs) This is a lot of data to comb through, but um, you're obviously committed. You're a committed connoisseur here. And, you know, your attention to this means a great deal. So thank you for diving in. Thank you for talking to me. And on behalf of the council and Bloomberg New Energy Finance, you know, again, I appreciate your listeners' time and attention. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.